Payers are making it harder to access drugs. Patients are shouldering a larger share of costs while manufacturers sponsor programs to help. It's a vicious cycle that can't continue as it is. Welcome to another episode of the Prescription for Better Access podcast. As co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howell ask their guests, what is their prescription for better access? All right, Scott, here we are, episode five, and I have to share, we have new listeners, our attorneys. Yeah, well, I guess the good news is at least we have an audience. (laughs) Yeah, we have an audience. But I'm required to share that, and this is uh, the language, the views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the co-host and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of sponsors or any of its affiliates. Okay. Well, that wasn't too bad. No, no, not, not bad. And I'm also excited because for the first time, we're together to record a, a, a podcast here at Land Grant Brewery in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Great. Will we get a chance to talk about craft beer later? Well, hopefully later. And in the meantime, we do have a beer, so <laughs> we're good to go. But I'm excited about today's guest. Do you want to tell us a little bit more? Yeah, likewise. We have a, another foundational episode today, bookending the discussion on pricing. We're uh, very fortunate today to have Steve Pearson with us. Steve is a well-known expert in our country on fair values and now fair access as well, and is the founder and CEO of ICER, the leading institute in our country, looking at these issues in a structured format. So welcome, Steve, and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Scott and Mark. Nice to be with you. Great. Well, if you could just kick us off by introducing yourself, Steve, a bit. I know folks will have some curiosity about your background, how you came to do what you're doing, and about your organization as well. Sure. So starting with the organization first. So ICER today is an independent, not-for-profit research institute, as you said. We're based in Boston. But from day one, about 16 years ago, we've put out reports in the public domain that try to do a couple things. One is to look separately at the clinical effectiveness information on different healthcare interventions, not just drugs, but surgical procedures and devices and other things, and look at the cost effectiveness or other information related to the value of these interventions. So not just looking at one or the other, but really trying to package both of them And then we bring that into the public domain and we have public meetings where we really want the public to engage. And by public, I mean patient groups, the manufacturers, insurers, clinical specialty societies, so that we can have a more transparent discussion about the evidence on effectiveness and value and figure out how to, again, kind of make that a North Star for the healthcare system so that we're using our resources as wisely as possible making sure that we get you know, the best health outcomes we can and in a way that aligns the pricing with that clinical value so that we can make it affordable while providing incentives for innovation. So that's what ICER is supposed to do. Where did I come up with this kind of crazy idea? I guess it kind of came out of my training as a doctor because in my, my early days in Boston, my residency program, I was in the hospital most of the time, but when I had my outpatient practice, I had to walk down the street to what was called a staff model health maintenance organization. And in those days, that meant that we, the doctors, were the insurance company. 
So after seeing patients all day, we'd walk down to the end of the hallway and make coverage decisions. Are we going to cover this new surgery that's never been done before or buy a big new machine or hire more nurses or cover this drug or that drug? And it all had to be viewed in the context of there being trade-offs because we never had all the resources, all the money we would want. And so it was really clear that we were making decisions that would have ramifications in ways that a lot of people would never see or understand. And so I became very interested in the ethics of how those decisions are made, in the science of how we try to understand the effectiveness and value, especially of new interventions. And I knew that other countries did this kind of work, so I had a chance to study a little bit in England in particular. But in the U.S., we've had a long tradition of kind of letting the market do this work for us in a way. But I became ever more convinced that the market really wasn't getting it right in a lot of different ways, and it led to some dysfunctionality that ultimately hurt, especially our most vulnerable patients. So I started ICER as kind of a laboratory to try to work with this way of looking at evidence and discussing it more publicly. And then over time, we just seemed to get a lot more influential because we were taking our money from nonprofit foundations so that we weren't beholden to the insurance companies or manufacturers. We were doing really good kind of academic research work on the evidence and trying to make real clear, transparent rules of how to engage and, and kind of participate in the process. And in a weird way that created kind of a monopoly and our work started to get used by payers, as you know, Scott, by drug companies as well for their own internal thinking about pricing and value. So now we're at a stage where our work has grown a lot and it's being used by, again, every stakeholder in the healthcare system. I mean, that doesn't mean that they all agree with it, but it means that it's become kind of an anchor in our discussions around value. Yeah, great. No, I think it's fantastic. And thank you, Steve, for joining us. What are some of the major initiatives that ICER is doing today and, and sort of going forward? So what we're best known for is our work on drug value assessment. So we have a process where we try to identify, it's not every single new drug, but we have a way of trying to capture the most important new launches about eight months before they're approved by the FDA. And that's when we start our assessment to put out a report right around the time that the drug is approved with an assessment of its clinical effectiveness and, in a sense, what a fair price would be for that relative effectiveness versus other options. So we do a lot of that. We look at price increases of existing drugs. And for the past few years, we've also put out something called a barriers to fair access report. Because again, our mission basically is to say, look, if we can get fair pricing, that should be hardwired into a system that provides fair access if we don't have those two fitting together, then we really have a lot of problems. We may not have either, but if we get fair pricing, we have to have fair access. So we look at especially the biggest payers in the country and we look how they are covering some of these key drugs and assign criteria to decide whether they are or aren't providing fair insurance coverage for their patients and how transparent that information is to people trying to figure out whether their drug's gonna be covered by their insurance company. So that's another big piece of our work, fair pricing and fair access, trying to make sure that the two are seen as, as mutually supportive. Well, and congratulations on the assessment of barriers to fair access report. A wonderful first step, and it really aligns well with what Scott and I are trying to do with this podcast. Can you tell us how, I know it's relatively new, can you tell us how that got started and what you hope to achieve with it? Well, we've been talking about fair access for a while, and 
it did kind of dawn on us about, I guess, four years ago that everybody could say fair access, but how would you know it if you saw it? What were the real standards? Because people are complaining about certain approaches that insurers take, like some drugs are covered only if you try a different drug first and it doesn't work for you, then you can get the other drug you want. And sometimes you have to jump through other hoops. And always there's the question of what patients have to pay out of pocket for their drug and whether that can be viewed as fair in some way or not. So we worked with, actually Scott was part of this larger kind of multi-stakeholder group with life science companies and payers, some patient groups and clinical specialty groups to come up with some criteria that we felt you literally could use like a report card and look at an insurance company's coverage and decide whether it was meeting these criteria. So we turned that around and have been using it available publicly. And we, I know that others have been using it, but we use it very officially now every year to do this report so that when we put it out publicly, it gets a lot of media attention. And actually the most exciting thing about this report so far, honestly, is that we share a draft version with the insurance companies before we go out to the public. And every single year we've done this, a bunch of the insurance companies when told, hey, you're not passing the grade for fair access on this drug, they ask us, hey, if we change our insurance coverage policy next week, can we do that and you give us credit for it? And our answer has been, yes, you can change it. And we will tell the public that you changed it, but we're not giving you credit for it as if you know you didn't get it right on day one. So we, we try to make sure that the public has a chance to see the truth, but that we drive change and we drive kind of a positive feedback loop so that insurers do feel like they are accountable for providing fair access. And that's something that has been lacking, I think, in our system. Yeah, agreed. It's great to see your organization shining a light on that part, Steve. And here's hoping we'll get to a year where you won't have anyone to notify up front that they need to change their criteria. If we do that, then we have to change our criteria. It'll be too easy. Yeah. It'll be way too easy. Well, you know, to that point, some folks, as you know, feel that the bar's been set too low, perhaps, for fair access. Could you comment on that and maybe how things might evolve over time? Well, there are two tricky elements, but the biggest one is we're not a governmental authority. We can't subpoena documents and we don't have the bandwidth to honestly parachute in and do a week-long site visit and watch them as they do everything. So we kind of have to look at their written documents and be a little bit blind to how they implement them. So you could have a document that says, if the patient has this medical reason that they need a different drug first, the doctor just has to call us. And that might seem reasonable. On the other hand, if the doctor calls and nobody responds for 10 days, or it gets lost in the mail, or all the other things that we know can happen, then it's not really, in a sense, driving to the key issue of what's creating the barrier for the patient and the clinician too. So we do have that problem. We can't get inside the works to see how it's implemented all the time. So we're trying to work on transparency again, whether doctors and patients from the outside can quickly Google and find the policy and figure out what's required. We started to count how many questions the doctor's office has to answer in order to get it approved. And just that's kind of a shock and awe experience. For those who haven't been in that world, the average number of questions is somewhere around 30 to 50 questions for a single patient and a single drug that somebody has to answer before they can send that into the insurance company. So 
there are other burdens that we have kind of a hard time getting at. The other thing that's really slippery is this out-of-pocket payment part, because we all think that insurers drive that process, but ultimately it's not the insurer's choice. It's the individual employer. They get to pick what percent or what absolute amount out-of-pocket their employee will pay. So you can't look at an insurance coverage policy and know exactly how much they're asking patients to pay out of pocket. It will depend on where the patient is employed and who's providing their insurance. So we're a little bit blind in some areas where it's still really important to realize that there are problems. That being said, though, we still we're finding problems when we do this report. And I think, as I mentioned, the change that we're starting to see is an important feature of, of what we hope continues. Yeah, I agree. I think it is definitely a step in the right direction. I also think that hopefully we can figure out ways to get some of the detail that you're talking about because it really matters to patients, as you know, what their copays and cost shares are and how difficult the PA is to get through and all those things as well. Yeah, now, I mean, there are legislative efforts to try to address some of these areas, but they tend to be relatively blunt, in my opinion. So the next generation of this, I'm actually hopeful of getting the payers to agree to somehow come together and agree to have site visits or other approaches that we can use to get deeper into the weeds of how things are implemented. Because again, I think that kind of transparency and accountability, the good insurers are welcoming that. They really are. And even they know that we might get it right 90, 95% of the time, but that doesn't mean that that additional five to 10% isn't important. Sure. Well, if I could on that on that note, and again, because this podcast aligns very well with with your efforts around the assessment of fair access report, I just want to take a minute. There's two parts to it. One is you've developed the criteria, which is fantastic that you've at least developed criteria for the fair access report evaluation. And then in the most recent version of the 2023 report that was released January 2023, on the ICER webinar about it, they mentioned and acknowledged that there was really no factoring in of the copay accumulators or other payer barriers, other payer barriers that they establish. So how will ICER sort of approach this sort of concept of, well, what is the right number of calls for a prior auth or what number, what is the right appropriate for cost sharing and things like that? How will you handle some of those delicate topics that impact patients so much? I think what we're planning to do, I don't think, I know we're planning to do, we just have to figure out exactly when to kind of circle back to the process that Scott and others were part of at the beginning so that we can have a next generation of these criteria and figure out where we might set new standards. One that we did just set all by ourselves two years ago was related to this step therapy idea of having to try something and then the next thing. And we realized that our criteria said if it's clinically reasonable, that means that the drug that they ask you to take is as good as the, as the one you want to take, as far as anybody knows. And if you get it wrong, it's not going to leave you with some kind of irretrievable health loss that you can never catch up from. So it can't, it's really unlikely to ever be possible in cancer or some other areas like that. On the other hand, we then went and looked at insurance coverage policies and some companies were requiring 10 different drugs to kind of get through before you could get the drug that your doctor might have prescribed for you. And each one of those 10 by itself was reasonable. But when you step back and say, is it, is it really fair to ask someone to go through 10 steps 
to get to a drug, even if each, each step is reasonable by itself? And we said, no, that can't be. So we ended up setting our own threshold based on some other work, and it was three. But believe me, there's nothing magical about that. For some patients, three steps might feel like way too many. For others, it might be a walk in the park. But your question is a good one because we're going to have to have some process to come up with some consensus around maybe a number of questions that are fair to ask as part of a prior auth. Is there some number that's too high? Or, you know, accumulators and, and maximizers are really tricky, though, because there are different arguments about whether it's fair for people to get somebody else to pay their deductible, whereas their neighbor has to pay their deductible all on their own just because it's for a drug that doesn't have a copay assistance program. You can say that that's not fair, so why should we give one person the ability to get their copay underwritten by a drug company but not the next person? So there are actually some ethical questions about whether accumulators are, I mean, about whether copay assistance is fair. And then you've got the add-on problems of whether accumulators themselves seem fair after that. But we need some deeper debate about those kinds of issues. I, I totally agree. I suspect the industry would be happy to trade off copay assistance for fair cost shares yeah. for patients. Oh, no, I think so. I mean, I grew up this mythical kind of early practice I was part of, this HMO. We had standard $5 copays for every single drug, no matter what it was. And I remember when we first went to a tiered formulary with differential out-of-pocket payments, it had a, an ethical intent, it had a strategic intent, and we're now, unfortunately, way beyond that, where it's not really being used to help people pick a less expensive option. It's being used to cost shift, and the whole structure is now almost based on an unethical premise, which is that insurance isn't really covering people who desperately need these high costs to be covered the most. And we do have a, a fundamental problem with that. Yeah. Well, thanks for founding the Fair Access Initiative, Steve. And it's interesting to hear you discuss how it needs to evolve, has evolved, and will continue to evolve over time. Let's turn a little bit to the fair pricing side of it, because I know that principle applies there as well. I know that some of the things that you look at and think about have evolved over time and will continue to. And I'm wondering how you think about that and projecting a little bit into the future about more and more very high cost therapies coming to market, things like gene therapy. What are you doing preparing for that? Trying to get our money out of Silicon Valley Bank, I think is the most important first step if you're gonna pay for that gene therapy. So first, just probably the 101 version of how does some distant independent group come up with what a fair price would be. Cost effectiveness basically looks at the short-term data that we've got and tries to create a model for how that plays out over time, even usually the lifetime of patients. On average, we look at the clinical effects of the new drug versus the standard of care, and we try to figure out how much better the new drug might or might not be. And then we look at the cost effects, and it could be, it's just not just the price, but it also, you know, if the new drug is more expensive, it might help reduce the need for hospitalization, or other ways it might actually reduce costs. So we try to look at all of that. And then if the new drug is better, but also adds costs, we have a kind of a scaling approach to how much higher the price should be than whatever we're comparing it to. And that's based on kind of loosely on the wealth of our health system and what happens when money is spent in one place and the premiums go up, what happens to people who 
get hurt by higher premiums. And so you try to figure out how that price can be set so that we're getting new health without losing health somewhere else through the adverse consequences of rising prices. And there actually are data on that. So you can figure out where that balance strikes, if you will. So what that means is that if you're taking a pill every day for the rest of your life, you know, we look at all those effects and all those costs and we say each day, this is how much that pill could cost there or about. And if we have a one-time treatment, now we'll turn to the gene therapies. So we have a one-time treatment that could be a cure. Maybe we don't know for sure yet, but our best guess is that it lasts at least 10 years or something. We get to say, wow, all of that clinical benefit and maybe all of those costs that you otherwise would have had to spend to take care of that patient now should be fairly made part of the price of a one-time cure. So ICERs, you know, sometimes we're characterized as always saying the price is too high for American drug companies, your price is too high. About 25% of the time we find that the price is just fine when it's launched. And on the other hand, sometimes payers come and say, why are you saying that gene therapies can be two or $3 million? That's just an extraordinary amount of money. And maybe we can't afford that, but it's all linked to this same idea that if you're gonna look at value and you're getting a real clinical home run, you should pay for that. And we have plenty of money in our system as long as we start to scale back on paying for so many things, not just drugs, but other things over their value, we'll have plenty left over to pay the two to three million-ish or whatever it might be for a cure that's a gene therapy. And that doesn't mean that every single gene therapy is gonna be at that scale because not every gene therapy is gonna be a cure for a life-threatening, really expensive condition, but it does mean that we have the room under the cap to reward that kind of innovation. And I think that's an important message for everybody. Yeah. Well, I think having spent a couple of years working on one of those products for gene therapy, I gotta say your report was, I thought, very well done. You all, people always say that when we say that the price was a good price. They always are happy with our process. <laughs> Somehow it doesn't usually work out that way if we say the price is too high. Then they have all kinds of problems. But let me throw you one curveball here, though. So the last gene therapy we looked at was a gene therapy for hemophilia. I don't know if that's the one you were talking about, but hemophilia is a very, very expensive condition. And it really highlighted this ethical tension within cost effectiveness, which is, as I mentioned, the traditional methods say we get to count every one of those years going forward that now we don't have to pay for. Let's say it's 500,000 a year and the patient's a young person. So let's say 50 years, 50 times $500,000 we get to wrap all that up and say, here, that's part of what should be the fair price of a one-time cure. And people just say, are we really saying that all that dysfunctional overpriced stuff that we do for 50 years has to be given to a drug maker for a one-time cure? Why don't we share that and let the drug maker take some of all those cost offsets, but not every penny? And that we're in a new zone now because cost effectiveness has really not done this before. But we really suggested that that should be shared between the drug maker and society or the health system, if you will. And we said, look, we'll just start at a 50% sharing, but people should be able to argue about whether in some cases it should be more sharing or less sharing, maybe depending on how much the federal government was involved in the development in the early days. But anyway, this is the next frontier, I think, of some of the conflicts around pricing. It's this tension over whether we give all of the value, if you will, to the drug maker 
with the cure or whether somehow we, we share that. I think that's a, that's a great point. And the pipeline is so deep in the gene therapies. There's so many things that are going on, some really exciting ones that are going to come. And I was at a, at a conference recently where they talked about the potential, what this is going to mean over the long term, to think that you're curing diseases that up to this point you never thought you'd be able to cure. So it is very exciting. But if I could, I want to get into an area that is a little opaque. So, and that's the issue around sort of the gross to net bubble. And so how that's sort of factored in, because recently we've seen a manufacturer come out with a biosimilar that had two prices, a gross price and a net price. We saw recently the insulin manufacturers all lowered their prices and they were immediately kicked off formulary. When you think they were, what they were doing was going to be good for the patients, they got kicked off formulary. So how does ICER sort of navigate the gross to net bubble as you do these assessments? Well, I mean, there's no doubt that the gross to net bubble is a sign of a deep illness inside our drug delivery and pricing system. There's just, there's just no doubt. It serves some purposes, obviously, but it's, it's been warped way out of proportion to whatever it was originally intended to cover and to be. And you can say every single partner, if you will, or part of the system is addicted to rebates right now in its own kind of weird way. And I don't want to necessarily say that it starts with the employers, but they play an important role here because they send out health benefits consultants to the PBMs. And for the PBM to get the employer's business, they have to guarantee a set rebate amount. And that locks in some of these dysfunctionalities. Now, what would happen if the PBM said, I'm going to be the one that's going to get away from rebates and go to you employer without any rebates? Some employers are going to take their business elsewhere. So there's this weird reverse incentive for everybody to kind of keep the current rebate system going. And everybody can point a finger, everybody, and say it's their fault, right? It's not my fault. I have to do it because they're doing something. So for us, it just means that we have to, when we put out what a fair price is, this is where the rubber meets the road, we're very clear. We mean this is the net price to whoever is, is, is buying the drug. So in a weird way, and maybe we're not helping, but we're agnostic to how big the gross to net bubble is. The fair price should be $100. That doesn't matter whether it's a $100 list price with no rebate or a $200 list price with a 50% rebate. We just say $100 and we'll let the system kind of figure that out. We did one of our white papers, each year we do a big white paper as we did on Fair Access. One year it was on the rebate system. And we pretty much did call for it to be dismantled. But again, it's like a Jenga tower. It's really hard to figure out where's the first thing you need to pull to get this changed in a way that doesn't kind of bring the system down. But I don't think there's a single person out there who really says the rebate system is the best way to achieve lower prices or affordability or to incentivize any good behavior. It's not. It's not. Yeah. And Steve, just to build on a little, how much visibility does your organization get into actual or expected manufacturer rebates as you're doing your calculations? So if we're comparing a new drug that's just coming into the market to some existing drugs, we do have an ability to work with this one company that provides average estimated net rebates across different payers in the country. And there are some issues with their data, but it's still the best source out there. 
And so we're trying to say that's what it's priced at in the market now. And so if the new one is a little bit better, we peg it to that net price. We're not just dealing with list prices, which are in a sense prices that nobody pays. But then again, for the new drug, if we know what the list price is, it almost doesn't matter. We say, hey, our best idea of what a fair price would be, net of rebates, is here. And again, sometimes that's near the list price, sometimes it's not. I mean, that, that's kind of what, what we serve up to the system to try to work at. And, you know, I do hear that people use our reports to work with manufacturers and say, if ICER says the fair price is $100, you're only offering me a rebate that gets me to $125. Let's work on this and see if we can get closer to what ICER thinks is a fair price. Not that we have any legal power, but people tend to look at us as one of the benchmarks that they can refer to when they're trying to figure out how low the rebate should go in some sense. I just wish the list price and the, the net price, I wish that gap would, would shrink. And we'll see. I mean, no, as you said, I, I think I hadn't heard too much yet about the real world implications for Novo and for Lilly as they've dropped their list prices on their insulin products. But that will be one of the stories that people will use to suggest whether, again, does it make any sense to try to drop a list price in today's current rebate market or ultimately, does it have to be the government that steps in and somehow blows this up as just so dysfunctional that the market's not going to be able to sort it out? If a manufacturer does drop in price, then unfortunately, the patient's copay or cost sharing or deductible doesn't change, doesn't it? Not always. It can, though. It can. If it's a percent coinsurance, it, it can. It depends on whether they're going to hit their out-of-pocket max each anyway. So at, at a certain scale, you're right, it's not going to change. And that's another thing, trying to figure out how to let patients benefit from lower prices is a consistent theme in a lot of people's efforts. It is hard to figure out how to operationalize that just because of the idiosyncrasies and the creative dysfunctionalities of our system. Agreed. Steve, I'm going to turn to another area of a little bit of question marks and sometimes controversy, the use of qualities. And I know it's, they're foundational to the kind of, this kind of research. But as you know, some folks feel that they're unfair of themselves. Could you just comment how ICER thinks about that and whether you expect any evolutions in the future around that? Well, this, this is a very hot political topic even right now. Yesterday, you may know, the House Committee, Energy and Commerce Committee, had a vote to pass a bill out of committee that would prohibit the use of the quali more broadly. And there's a lot of fighting over whether it's just the quali that will be prohibited or whether certain other similar measures will be. So that's a, a drama that will continue to unfold. The bottom line is that I've never viewed ICER as a kind of a quality machine. What we're trying to do is to say, look, drugs can help people in their health primarily by extending their life and or by improving their quality of life. And if we're gonna compare fairly apples to apples to apples and thinking what a fair price would be between mental health and cardiology and rheumatology, we have to figure out a way to merge that length of life and quality of life effect. And that's the quality was developed, you know, more than 30 years ago to basically do that. Now, it has the potential to create some real ethical concerns because I'm not going to get into the weeds here, but it, it can be viewed as being discriminatory because if you extend the life of people who have a chronic disability, it actually assigns a lower kind of weight to that extended life. 
So this is the primary reason that about, gosh, four or five years ago, we'd been using the Quali because it was the standard health economics tool. Drug companies used it in their research. Everybody used it. But this problem was acknowledged. We created something called the equal value of life years gained, which was really meant to take that concern off the table. So we now hardwire the same value for any extension of life, no matter what your background condition or age or, or whatever might be. But there are going to be ongoing, because every method of trying to capture a health gain and say, this is what we care about, is gonna make somebody feel like it's not fully comprehensive or somehow disadvantaging one group versus another. So it's an ongoing struggle. But at the end of the day, I still think everybody at their core would agree that the best way to incentivize and reward innovation is to reward it in proportion to the ability to help patients. We shouldn't just have some random number depending upon whether this year you're going to face a competitor versus next year or generic. I mean, there should be some some way to scale it. And so I think that this general approach to using cost effectiveness is going to continue to be a foundation of this kind of work. But I do think we all have to be eyes wide open that the measures that we use can have consequences that we need to be very thoughtful about. So our own pricing now, it's based on the equal value life year gained um, at the top end, which is usually the number that people pay most attention to. But if this bill, for instance, right now passes or if other work happens, we might end up basically having to let the quality go and not even include it at all in our reports. But we'll have the equal value life you're gained and perhaps other measures that cannot really be viewed as discriminatory and we'll keep going. If I could, Steve, I'm sure that you listened to all the previous podcasts that we, Scott and I, have done so far this year. But one of the key themes that we've learned is the lack of transparency that patients feel is out there from payers and not just patients, patients, providers, others. But I got to tell you, ICER is got to be the most transparent organization. I congratulate you for making sure all your meetings, all your participants, all your assessments are all done sort of out in the open. And as you mentioned, you do have some momentum, as you said earlier, all the stakeholders are looking to ICER. So with that sort of momentum, what are you hoping to do to shape the price and access environment in the U.S.? And and where could ICER even have more of a greater impact going forward? Thanks. It's very nice comments. And believe me, we never think that we've got it right yet or that we can, you know, we can't be more transparent, et cetera. So part of the long arc that we're on, I think, still involves more connection with the patient community and with the clinician community. Right now, I think ICER is more known by drug companies and payers But, you know, there are a growing number of clinician specialty societies that interact a lot with our work and I think are kind of viewing their own professional role as having a say on value. So I still think that for ICER, this is a long-range goal, which is to continue to improve our ability to engage with patients during our reviews, but also just around the larger conversation around value in our healthcare system. Same with clinicians. And then ultimately, I would like to think that our work can be viewed over time as a less ad hoc application, because payers can pick and choose right now. If they don't like the result of an ISA report, they don't have to (laughs) pay any attention to it. Drug companies, it's kind of the same thing. So in some way, I would like it to be a little bit more hardwired that people at least have to comment or consider it in in a more formal, transparent way, whether they like the results or not. And certainly we try to do that in our public meetings, And I'm kind of glad that we haven't been part of the government 
since day one, to be honest, because when you're not part of government, you can experiment with things, you can change things quickly, you can be more nimble and responsive, you can take risks. And I think that gets harder when you get woven into government. But at some point, increasing use of our work by state and the federal government, I think, is going to be part of the journey that America is on because we're going to continue to struggle to pay for the great innovation coming out of the life science industry. And I think it's just going to increase the need to have more official tools, if you will, to help us make sure we get the pricing and the access right. If I could just follow up real quick, because you just mentioned the pick and choose, which brings up the topic of inconsistent insurance coverage, where a patient may be on a private plan and then be on a government plan. And you would think that one drug would be covered on both plans. So this inconsistent coverage is really a barrier to access. How can ICER play a role to streamline that and help ensure that there's more consistent coverage across the plans? Well, I hear you calling for single payer. I know that's your preferred option. <laughs> I, I, that is not my I preferred underst- option. <laughs> I understand that instinct. Very common in the people I talk to in the life science industry. So, yeah, I mean, some people think it's a, a feature, not a flaw, that you have choice. You can pick one health plan that covers your drug this way. You can pick another health plan that covers it that way. That's fictional, right? Partly because patients can't even figure out how their health plans are going to cover it. So at least one place you can start is to say, we need transparency. If a person who's a health plan member at Aetna today is thinking about switching to United Healthcare or has to because of their employer's decision, they should be able to look online today and figure out whether their drug is covered or not, whether they'll have to back up and take some other drug first or not. And that is really hard for people to do today. So I think calling for more transparency on that And then we do believe, and this is part of our fair access criteria, that every health plan needs to have a very quick, very clear process to allowing people to continue on their current drug while they might have to apply for an exception to be able to keep on it over the long term. But people have these gaps where they switch insurers and suddenly they can't get their drug and they're trying to frantically get coverage for it and they have these gaps, which is just clinically nonsensical. So... I think we need a way to make sure that that process is smooth, quick, and transparent, both when you're going through it and even when you're thinking about doing it um, kind of prospectively. If we get that right, I think it'll address a fair amount of the kind of the friction that happens around people when they change insurers. But the simple answer is a single payer without a doubt. (laughs) Well, no one would ever think I would be an advocate for single payer, which- Another another blunt (laughs) instrument. Yeah. Steve, before we wrap up, We've discussed the fair pricing, the fair access side. The third goal for ICER is sustainable innovation. Any ideas about that for the future, work that you might do in that space? Well, one of the things that's interesting is part of the Inflation Reduction Act that passed was this, you can call it a cap on inflation of the pricing of drugs and now in the Medicare market. So we don't know exactly yet how that will play out across different segments like the commercial market. But if we assume that we can have a more hardwired story in which we have X number of years under brand pricing and then we'll get generic pricing and we won't have price increases in the meantime, it may actually allow us when we're doing our cost effectiveness models to factor that in. Because in a sense, that's part of the bargain that we all are anticipating, a higher price and then a lower price. But it's hard to factor that in in the U.S. market when 
that higher price keeps going up before you get the generic drop and you might not actually save anything over that experience. So that's one, I guess, technical way that we're going to try to make sure that our work is sustaining the idea of innovation. And the other is, when this came up during COVID, there's a kind of a not unreasonable view that a drug should cost what it costs to make plus some fair profit. And I think a lot of people feel that that's not adequate to incentivize the kinds of risk-taking and venture capital and other things that we need to kind of keep real innovation going. So, you know, we're in a sense a different paradigm. We don't care if that pill costs you two bucks to make. If it's saving a life, it's going to be worth a lot of money. So our messaging has partly been, in a sense, to provide a counter narrative to people who feel that pills should be priced by their marginal cost in an Indian or other kind of ex-US generic factory. Because I just I think that that's not an unreasonable way to at least talk to the public about value and fair pricing. But I think our approach, in, I think it emphasizes the need for more incentives for real innovation. Yeah, well, that's certainly true in that analogy. Well, Steve, we always wrap up the same way here. We invite our guests to wave a magic wand and make something happen. Could you tell us what your prescription for better access would be? Oh, prescription for better access. That's great. So I'm going to go back to the idea that fair pricing drives fair access. And Scott, I know I'm picking an easy target, but you put out an article years ago that basically said this is the way the future should look. There should be an explicit, transparent agreement. And it doesn't have to be ICER, believe me. I'd be happy to be part of this narrative. But there has to be some determination of what a fair price would look like. And if that's accomplished, then that means certain things happen on access. And with that balance, we're likely to get more utilization, which can balance out a lower price if you're thinking about revenue. But ultimately, again, we get the right thing for patients at an affordable, sustainable level. So my magic wand would be, I think, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act is now looking 10 years after launch. I think we're going to have to take on the launch pricing as part of this in the next generation. And my dream would be that we create the right carrots, if you will, for fair pricing, that we get that fair access, fair pricing blend, because I think that would be better for patients and be better for the life science industry over the long haul. Well, well said. And from your lips. (laughs) Exactly. Steve, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a real treat to get to spend some time with you and learn more about your work and your organization. Thank you, Scott. Thank Thank you, you, Mark. I'll continue sipping my sparkling water while you guys go have a beer. Somehow, we've had fair pricing and fair access. I'm not sure if this is fair liquid remuneration, but we'll work on that. (laughs) No, absolutely. Look forward to buying you a beer at some point, Steve. So, Mark, some reflections? Sure. I mean, again, it's been great to meet Steve. I know you've known Steve, but for me to meet him and hear the story, I took away four really major things. One is the founding story. I love the founding story of how ICER today is even today because of his background, his experience with HMOs, his experience with seeing what is working across, whether it's just drugs or outside. But then it's really filled a void. You know, it's, it's grown because there was this need in the U.S. for what ICER does. The second thing I think I mentioned earlier is transparency. I started my career in nonprofits and and patient advocacies. I want to see patient group voices heard, and the best way for them to be heard is to make sure that everything is open, very transparent, and it helps really improve access, I believe. The third is evolution. I love that ICER is not a static entity, that they're looking at the next generation criteria, even for the 
the assessment of uh, fair access report. And maybe they'll invite the podcast hosts to uh, join them on that evolution. But it was here to, you know, talk to, to hear him talk about how they are going to evolve, that it's not set in one way because they are very influential in the coverage decisions. And they do have a responsibility. And it sounds like also a willingness to let that evolve. And finally, the barrier to fair access report, again, just bravo for doing it. But it's good to hear, to hear him say it again, that they're just getting started. Because you and I both know there's so many barriers to access. I wouldn't have get passed as many payers, maybe, as he has, Steve, and ICER has. But I love the fact that the payers are paying attention to their report. And that if we put new, the new criteria in place that says things like what is cost sharing should be for patients, what is the proper number of questions for PAs, what is the right number of steps for step therapy, I think that's just a huge step forward to make a difference. Those are four of my big lessons. Yeah, all great. I'll just add, I'm struck again in talking with Steve, who I know was really deep on the science and the research, the methodology, has all that stuff down, and they're transparent about it. They do evolve it over time based on feedback and all those things. And then the counterbalance to that is how quickly on many of these topics you get from the science and the methodology to some kind of value judgment, mm -hmm. and which is equally important and sometimes maybe even more important and even much more difficult to answer sometimes. So it's, it's a high calling, it's a important work, and somehow we need to marry the scientific approach with techniques that bring people in and have the rest of the conversation as well. Yeah, sometimes the theory isn't always, uh, I'm reading some biographies and yeah. finish the biographies of, of uh, General Grant, for example, President Grant, yeah. for example, and just how the theory of what war is versus what it actually is is entirely different. And yeah. and I think it's the same thing with our industry because we're seeing, we're seeing obviously the boots on the ground, the patient stories, the other challenges. Yeah. But I think that's why we're excited to have this podcast and we're excited to have Steve here join us to help everybody understand what ICER's doing and how they can continue to uh, evolve and, and be a major part of improving access for patients. So thank you, Steve. We appreciate it. With that, I'm gonna do the wrap up. First of all, I apologize for any background noise. That's what happens when you record at a brewery, right? The benefit is the beer, the, the downside is a little, it's a little noisy. But I also wanna tell everybody that the podcast is now available on YouTube. So we recorded this one on video, thrilled to do this. And want to say thank you to everybody for listening and subscribe to our channels. And we'll look forward to continuing this dialogue on a prescription for better access. And of course, thanks to my co-host, who uh, I you, now Mark. get to uh, buy lunch and dinner. So thank you, everybody. Join co-hosts Mark Hansen and Dr. Scott Howe as they launch the Prescription for Better Access podcast. The podcast will be available on Spotify, Apple, Google, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, feel free to email Mark and Scott at comments at prescriptionforbetteraccess.com. Thank you. Thank you.